Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Everything you do is making an impact in this world. This is not an elitist issue. This is a quality of life issue. How dare you? And I feel like it's my responsibility as a human being. So what? The world is at stake. What, like it's hard? Hey y'all, welcome back to Eco Chic. It's so good to have you here today. I hope you're doing well and I hope your November holiday season is rolling along nicely. I cannot believe how far into the year we already are. I can't believe it is almost the holidays. And I feel like everyone says that every year, but there's something about this year that just feels a little different and a little rushed. I feel like I didn't get the hype for Halloween that I normally get. Now that the holiday season is here, I'm buying my first ever tree. Like I've always been home for the holidays and I've never owned my own tree, real or fake, in places I've lived. So this year I am deciding to do it. I think I'm getting a fake tree. I think there's a lot to consider real versus fake, but knowing that I will probably use it for a few years and I will not be spending the Christmas day on my own in my apartment, I think I'm going to do a fake tree. And my thought is honestly, like if I'm getting a fake tree, I'm going to go really fake and I think I'm going to get a pink fake tree. There's something about it that just feels very me at this stage in my life. So stay tuned, not to give you my whole life story and like how I am going through this holiday season, but I hope it is going well for you. And as you are kind of staying aware of these holiday sales and all of these very early Black Friday deals that are going on, it seems like it's getting earlier and earlier every year. I encourage you to think a little bit deeper about your purchases, make a list, don't feel pressured to overconsume. I have a few episodes on Black Friday specifically. I usually put one out every year, so I can link the last couple ones in the show notes if you want to go in and get some quick little Black Friday tips. But on the topic of conscious consumerism, I'm excited to share with y'all today's episode, a conversation with Tanya Hester, author of Wallet Activism, how to use every dollar you spend, earn, and save as a force for change. This book comes out next week if you're listening to this episode in real time, so we're going to get a little preview from the author. And Tanya and I have a really thoughtful conversation around this term, wallet activism, and how she personally defines it in the book. And I think something interesting about her philosophy around wallet activism is that it goes beyond conscious consumerism. And I think generally as a collective group, sometimes it feels like we are talking into a void because if you're listening to the show or if you're talking to your friends, it's very easy to fall into this trap of everyone encouraging the same sort of sustainability habits. And there's something about our conversation today that really resonated with me because it's not just about the brands that you buy from and it's not just about demanding policy action, 
But there's something about activism that also really has to tie into quite literally social activism and how is your dollar influencing your social values. And we also talk about banking. We talk about things like consumer guilt and making the right choices for yourself with the information that you currently have at the time. We get into some interesting rabbit holes on the topic of consumer choice, on the topic of policy action, on some case studies that we really enjoyed. I love, love, love her example of the ozone layer activism of the late 80s, early 90s. And then we talk about my latest fascination or my fascination over the summer with the electric F-150 and what that really meant for the electric car market. So not to give too much away, but I really enjoyed this conversation. It was very fluid. I hope it really resonates with y'all and sticks with you as you go on day to day, because I think the ultimate moral of the story, the ultimate bottom line of wallet activism, the book is that how you are using your dollar is going to be different in every instance, depending on your values, depending on what you want to support or what you don't want to support and what options are actually available to you. So with that, I hope you really enjoyed this episode. Again, so nice to have you. Please share it with a friend if you enjoyed this episode. Rate and review on Apple Pods. If you're not already following me on Spotify, make sure you are so you get every single new episode of Eco Chic. And if you want to chat further, it's really easy to get in touch with me via Instagram. I am at Eco Chic Podcast, and all my other links will be in the show notes. So with that, enjoy today's conversation on wallet activism with Tanya Hester. I'll talk to you later. Yep. Tanya, welcome to the show. Welcome to Eco Chic. I'm excited to have you here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm thrilled to talk to you. I want to start off our conversation hearing a little bit about your background before wallet activism. Tell me about, tell me about you as a child, first of all, and let's, (laughs) (laughs) where'd you grow up? Tell me your life story. Let's see. I grew up uh, mostly in Green Bay, Wisconsin, a wonderfully polluted paper mill town. And we moved around a bit. So I lived also in the South for some of my growing up years. And I think I was probably like a big pain in the butt as a kid (laughs) because I was always just very opinionated and not afraid to kind of speak up and point things out that clearly needed fixing, which, you know, a lot of grownups don't want to hear that. I appreciate that. (laughs) And then the, the growing up and being a pain in the butt child, how did you get from that stage to your first book work optional? Yeah. So I went to college, uh, as you know, a lot of folks do and didn't really know what I wanted to do with my life, but I knew I really cared about issues affecting the planet, affecting people. Um, although I certainly came at this first as an environmentalist. And then I think the social justice focus came later on, um, just for background, I was definitely president of the environmental club in high school and brought recycling to the school and all of that stuff, you know, classic do-gooder kind of, kind of life. And, I got an opportunity um, to work in news for a while. So I, I worked at National Public Radio and KQED in San Francisco. 
and got to do some of that. And then I had the opportunity to interview with a political consulting firm and I talked with them and found out, wow, you work on all the issues I care about. You work for political candidates, but also issue campaigns and campaigns to reach voters, to pass ballot measures, that kind of thing. And I thought this is really interesting. And so I ended up doing that job for 16 years, which was a lot longer than I would have expected, but I got to work on just about every environmental and social issue out there and learned a ton about how change happens, how change doesn't happen, but you know, how to pull the levers of power, what things individuals can do versus what things require policy change. And so near the end of it, my husband Mark and I decided to start saving to retire early, namely because I knew based on watching my dad go through this, that I was likely not going to have full mobility for my whole life. I have the same genetic disability he has. He was forced to retire around 41, and I really wanted to be able to do that on my own terms. So I blogged about saving for early retirement, and that gave me the opportunity to write my first book, Work Optional. And for those who aren't familiar with publishing, basically, people want to publish things that are trendy topics and the topic of fire and early retirement is definitely very trendy. And so that was the book I had the opportunity to write. And I did my best to talk about retiring early to engage in activism or to do purpose-driven work or to think about things beyond your own life in there. But it's still, you know, fundamentally a book that I wrote because I wanted to write a book and someone said, we want to publish a book if you'll write about this. And so that was a very different topic from this, but I think of this one while at activism is really going back to my roots of um, activism, caring about all of these different issues that affect people and the planet. And I think the first book then let me publish this one. You know, that one was the one I was, I had the opportunity to publish. This was the one I really wanted to write and publish. I love that. Thank you for your transparency, because I think that book publishing is both a very shiny topic that a lot of people want to engage with. And then one that's also incredibly nuanced. Like you don't really have a lot of people who wake up and become authors on their own accord. It takes a lot of time to get to that point. And it also takes a lot of time to get to the point where someone wants to give you an offer. And, you know, there's a lot of back and forth in the book publishing industry, but something that I want to talk about beyond book publishing, something you mentioned that I think is really fascinating was your work that kind of gave you this perspective on where policy is necessary and where collective action makes a difference. And I'd love to talk to you a little bit about that in the context of environmentalism. So something I shared with you that I'm really fascinated by in your book is this example of ozone layer activism of the 90s. So talk to me a little bit about that example, if you could walk through it with us and the value of both collective and policy in that sense. Yeah. For those who are too young to remember this, um, <laughs> for, for folks my age, I'm, I'm 42, We remember really clearly in the late 80s and early 90s, scientists started sounding the alarm about, okay, there's this hole in the ozone layer that wasn't exactly scientifically accurate, as I'm sure you well know, um, but it was an evocative term to say, okay, we, we are damaging parts of our upper atmosphere that play a really important role in protecting us from UV radiation. And, and people really got it. You know, I think there was really clear science communication then, but what happened is you had individual world governments slowly taking action and then eventually banding together to take action. But at the same time, you had consumers say, oh, wow, this thing that, you know, most most of the ozone harming chemicals came in spray cans of various items. So spray paints, spray deodorant, hairspray, because you have to remember this was like late 80s, early, early 90s, the heyday of hairspray. (laughs) 
<laughs> and, um, and people really took it seriously. And you can see very dramatic shifts in consumer buying patterns and what types of products sold or didn't sell. A lot of the big brands reformulated their products to make, you know, a spray deodorant into something that was roll on or something like that, or um, making the hairsprays non-CFC propellant based. And it was such a good example of where the progress that we made, because ultimately the problem was essentially fixed. You know, it's, it's not perfect, but we're getting there and it's a, a multi-decade thing to truly fix the ozone layer, but we're actually a ahead of schedule in terms of making that progress. But it's a great example of where that was only possible because we had both policy action and consumer action. And it was a relatively small number of consumers who started to change their ways that forced the big corporations to start reformulating and paying attention and saying like, oh, we need to meet this different consumer demand. So I really love that example. And I love talking about it, especially among folks who understandably are skeptical that we can really make a difference with our individual choices. I, I get that skepticism. And I think for the most part, corporations want you to be skeptical about that because they don't want you to change your buying habits. And so they would love for you to believe that your, your actions don't matter. Um, but I think the ozone example shows that they do, they absolutely do, but that we sort of have to approach the big problems from both sides. It's not just policy action or just individual consumer action. Yeah, I like that example a lot because prior to reading it in Wallet Activism, it really had not dawned on me that there was already an instance where both collective and policy action had fixed a problem or like fixed it to a very successful extent. And I also think the interesting thing about that is like the science communication piece of it. This was also the time of an inconvenient truth of people both doubting climate scientists and the first wave of like really intense belief in these activism movements. I'm also thinking of like PETA at the time and the activists going to fashion shows and dumping paint on fur. And it's an interesting time to think about in the sense of collective action, because not only are people attaching themselves to these kind of like moral causes, I suppose, but it's also the first time that we're really seeing the media pick up on a lot of things and really politicizing certain things or really uh, bolstering certain voices. So anyway, long story short, the ozone layer example is like a really fascinating case study in what could happen if you were to channel all of those things to the extent that we see media and social media and networks, and we see all of these things at a whole different level than we did in the 80s and 90s. Like It sounds like there is so much more possibility for collective action now, and we already know that it could work. Absolutely. I, I think that's completely right. You know, one of the things I think they did really well with the messaging for the ozone layer, uh, which did precede the inconvenient truth stuff by just a little bit. So I think most people had no concept of human impact on the atmosphere. Um, they put it in really personal terms. They made it sound like, hey, guess what? You have this free sunscreen in the sky and you're going to lose that free sunscreen and you're going to get more sunburns, age more quickly and get skin cancer. And that's a really personal, powerful message. And I don't think that there's been really widespread adoption of a similar or kind of parallel message around climate change, where obviously it's already affecting most people in the world one way or another, whether it's in terms of your home actually being at risk because of fire or flooding or storms or other things like that, or it's your food getting more expensive, your water getting you know harder to get into your tap. 
there are things we're all already experiencing, but I think that the messaging, my hope for it is that it will really go into that personal level because, you know, fundamentally a lot of us, we sort of can't relate to a problem until it's personal. So we have to make it personal. Completely agree. I think that a lot of climate solutions have to be personal to really impact people because a lot of people feel like, from my perspective, of course, a lot of people feel like climate change is something that is not happening to them or it's happening in another part of the world or it's just the polar bears. And I think collectively we are getting over that cognitive dissonance we have with the climate crisis, but it is definitely a slow roll and it takes a long time to have people come to terms with the fact that it's happening to them. It is happening to us. We are seeing fires and floods and hurricanes all at the same time. Like it is a lot to take in for the individual. And it's also really scary. And that also gets me thinking about something you mentioned earlier about the belief that perhaps we don't have as much influence in corporate America as we may believe as consumers. And I think that was also a really fascinating part of your book that I I attach myself to this idea that we live in a capitalist society. We want to believe it's all supply and demand. And I even say that all the time. I'm like supply and demand, like demand better things, but there's a little bit more to it than just supply and demand. And like this perfect capitalist system we'd like to believe we live in. Today's episode of Eco Chic is brought to you by American Blossom Linens. I'm always on the hunt for some really nice sheets because I feel like there is nothing more luxurious and indulgent at the end of a busy workday than crawling into a really well-made bed. American Blossom Linens are sustainable, they're ethical, and they're made in America with 100% American organic cotton. The cotton is actually from Texas and the linens are produced in Georgia. They're environmentally friendly, pure, they're chemical-free softness. There's no formaldehyde in these sheets, so it really feels like you're sleeping on a cloud. They are generously sized. They fit luxury beds, and again, it just gives you this hotel room type experience. I also love that the sheets are labeled top or bottom, which makes it so much easier to be putting on a fitted sheet and keeping them in place. Every queen and king sheet set comes with four pillowcases. And again, the cherry on top is that American Blossom Linens are responsibly crafted by families manufacturing in the U.S. for over 122 years in Thomaston, Georgia, a really cute little town in central Georgia. American Blossom sheets always come with free shipping and a two-year risk-free trial. To try them out, use code ECOCHIC20 for 20% off your order at AmericanBlossomLinens.com. Again, that's ECOCHIC20, all one word, E-C-O-C-H-I-C-2-0, AmericanBlossomLinens.com. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, I think that capitalism... I do critique it a bit in the book, but I also say fundamentally, this is the system we live in. And so it's important to play by some of the rules of capitalism. The the main flaw in it from an environmental perspective is that there's no incentive for any corporations or other businesses to do what's best for the planet. That's not a profitable thing. And so they focus on profits, which generally mean exploitation, whether it's exploitation of people or exploitation of natural resources. And the fact that we don't price in externalities, which means, you know, like they don't have to clean up the pollution they put into the air, into the water, things like that. If we did all of that stuff and baked it into capitalism, our prices would shift a lot. But yeah, I think that the supply and demand side, 
as environmentalists, I think we tend to focus mostly on one side, which is sort of like, how can I stop buying all these things or stop doing these things? And we forget that actually buying some things and sending the signal that there's positive demand for things that are better, things that are an improvement um, is also a very powerful thing that we can do. And so it's not just saying, I'm not going to shop at all anymore. Although, you know, there are worse things you could do <laughs> than really cut your consumption. Uh, but it's also thinking about pushing up demand where that's helpful to do too. And when we're thinking about pushing up demand, and maybe this is an opportunity for us to get into the actual definition of wallet activism, is pushing up demand just simply like buying from companies that are doing better? Is it buying from B Corp? Is it buying locally? Like what, what kind of demand are we actually looking for? It really depends on the situation. You know, unfortunately, that's the answer I'm probably going to give a lot of things because honestly, one of the biggest problems in this discussion is that for too long, the people who've offered solutions have oversimplified things. They've not trusted readers or listeners or audiences to handle the full truth. And they've dumbed things down, watered things down, looked for the simplest solution. If simple solutions worked universally, the earth would be saved already. I mean, we've all been recycling for three decades now, and uh, I think we all know where we are. Um, and so it's important to look at the complexity of things. But for example, electric cars are a really important shift that we have to make. We, we can't have fossil fuel burning vehicles on our roads if we expect to address climate change well enough to avoid the worst effects of it. And so we need to show companies that it's worth their while to convert over to electric vehicles. And I'm sure that there are folks saying, okay, but let's just all get out of our cars and have only mass transit and this and that. Like, yes, that would be great in utopia. That is not the world we live in. In the world we live in, we don't have the infrastructure to do that much mass transit. If we do do that, it's going to take decades and we need to address this stuff quickly. And so the best thing we can do if you are someone who needs a car and you can't make do with the car you already have is to buy an electric car and raise demand for electrics. Uh, because as, as folks I'm sure know, electricity is source agnostic. So, you know, your car that burns on gas, that has to burn fossil fuels. There's no way around it, but an electric car can be powered by anything that can create heat and motion. So that could be coal, could be natural gas, but it also could be solar, wind, geothermal, um, nuclear. I think that needs to stay in the conversation too. You know, the, the UN projections all show that we can't seriously address the energy needs of the world in a way that's just and equitable without doing nuclear on some level. So just putting that out there, we don't have to focus on that, but, but still the, the point being that an electric car can run on anything. And so it gives us the ability to transition the grid over to clean sources rather than keeping people really attached to their gas station. I like the, I like the conversation around electric cars because I also think that there has to be a very cultural component to electric vehicles. So something that I think about very often that I've been thinking about for the last few months is the culture around electric vehicles and this perhaps like machismo culture of the general American person. And I'm thinking about the Ford F-150 that over the summer they came out with an electric version. And the reason it was so impactful and like was projected to be so incredibly valuable as a climate solution is because the F-150 is the most popular car in America. That's absolutely crazy to think about. So if we offer an electric version will people go for it? It is sold as, uh, there's all these commercials about how powerful it is, how it could power your house, how you could run for so long. And like this, 
this big, tough American car just happens to also be electric. And not that I am like actively keeping up with the sales of electric F-150s, but we haven't really seen that kind of takeoff. And why is that? Is it a cultural distinction between a regular quote unquote truck and an electric truck? And if they are comparably the same and physically look extremely similar, why would people not go for the electric version? So I like that example a lot because there's a lot to be done with electric cars, a lot to be done with demand. And then there's also this like very human component of like, how do we convince people that there is nothing wrong, quote unquote, with electric vehicles? Yeah. And I think I'm, I can't get into the science of making them charge faster and all that stuff. I think that's probably a lot of the barrier for folks, but I think your larger point of needing to focus on solutions that are truly viable for mainstream folks who don't consider themselves environmentalists, who aren't enmeshed in climate doom. You know, and if we just focus on talking to the people who are panicking about the climate, we are all likely very different from, like you said, the buyer of a Ford F-150. And so I think that's a great example. I, I you know, I've heard mixed things about how environmentally friendly it actually is as a vehicle, but I think it points more to the need to focus on things that appeal to the middle of the population, you know, rather than the fringes. And so, yeah, I'd love to see more examples like that in all spaces. Yeah, me too. Me too. So I would love to get into, again, this idea of wallet activism with you, because I think it's a really fascinating term and one that I thought I understood when I first read the title of the book. But as I got deeper, I was like, there is a lot of nuance in this that I had not considered. So could you just take a second, Tanya, to define that for us? What is wallet activism? I think I define it a little bit differently each time I talk about it, because as you said, it's, it's, it's a broad ranging topic. So really wallet activism is using your financial power in all its forms to change the status quo and what that status quo is that you're trying to change, how you want to change it. All that's up to you. I talk in the book about figuring out your values and what issues are most important to you so you can prioritize but it's taking a different mindset to everything. And I think that we've tended to talk in environmental circles for a long time about what you buy, you know, the shopping side of this equation. And some of that I think is positive. Some of it I think is actually negative because ultimately we're still in a consumerist frame, but it's much more than that. It's what we eat and how much of it, it's where we choose to live, how we operate in our neighborhood and things like schools that we choose for children. It's what we do for work, how we conduct ourselves at work. It's where you keep your money in the bank, where you invest it and how you give it away. I mean, it's anytime money is involved or financial privilege is involved in some way, you have power. And that's really the the core idea is just recognizing that. And as we kind of touched on earlier, it's not always something that corporations want you to feel. They don't want you to feel powerful. They want you to feel like a tiny cog in the machine. That's that's irrelevant. Um, but so kind of reclaiming that power and owning it and thinking about it in all its forms, I, th- I think is an incredibly um, impactful act. And so I wanted to help people see all those things because there are so many opportunities we have that are financial that we don't necessarily see as a moment to push back against the status quo. Yeah, absolutely. Was there a moment in your personal life, despite growing up as an environmentalist and working in this space before your true kind of reckoning with wallet activism, that was a bit of a flashbulb moment for you? I wouldn't say there was a flashbulb moment exactly, but I think the reason that I wanted to write this book was because I wanted to read this book. 
because I wanted answers to all of these questions of looking at, you know, I, I wrote before primarily in the personal finance space and in personal finance, people are really focused on responsible investing. Well, if you look at all the things available to you there, a lot of them have incredibly exploitative fees associated with them. So they're taking advantage of people who want to invest in ways that are less harmful. And there's no talk really in personal finance about the impact that where you bank has, that that's an incredibly powerful act that isn't part of the discussion. And so it was things like that or thinking about, you know, okay, like I've, I've heard that it's good to go buy a stainless steel water bottle, but wow, doesn't stainless steel actually take a lot of energy to produce? And how likely is this to actually be recycled? And is that really the right thing to do? Or looking at zero waste and thinking about like, okay, a lot of this feels dishonest. You're talking about your little jar of trash, but how much trash are you leaving at restaurants or at other stores or things like that in order to show this beautiful image on Instagram? It was all of that kind of stuff where I just said, you know, I feel like I'm flooded with information, but I don't know which of it I can trust. A lot of it feels dishonest or incomplete or ultimately, um, promoted by people who are trying to sell me something. And so I, I just said, you know, I know these are hard questions to answer, so I'm going to do it. And it took a few years, but I feel really happy with where we landed. I mean, stuff is complicated. There aren't easy answers always, but I tried to at least simplify the decision-making process so that people would feel really empowered to make choices um, in a way that doesn't exhaust you or take all your energy or make you feel paralyzed at the store. Yeah. I think that dishonesty is something that really struck me for a long time as perhaps immobilizing in a sense as a consumer. And I think that there's also this feeling, especially entering the sustainability space and saying like, I'm going to live a more eco-conscious lifestyle where you also want to hold on to things and do your best and kind of hoard stuff for lack of a better word, because you're just like, I don't need to buy this again. I bought it once. And conscious consumerism is not buying anything at all. And that's also not the answer. It's not necessarily holding on to things that bring you no value, but more broadly thinking like, how am I being strategic and tactful while also considering larger implications? It's, it's a lot to problem solve on your own day to day. For sure. It a hundred percent is. And, and I think that trying to navigate some of these choices on your own, it can feel really impossible. And so I don't blame people when they say, why am I stressing about this when corporations are just doing their thing unchecked and we don't have enough policy regulation on them? And that's right. We absolutely do need policy action. We need to hold corporations accountable, but we also need to recognize that, yes, corporations are doing bad stuff, but we are the ones funding them when we buy from them. And so it's thinking more holistically, as you said, we can't just stop buying altogether. You know, most people are not going to be able to make that work. That's not realistic. But, you know, with what you do buy, with, with how you work, all the things that we've talked about, um, it's recognizing the power you have rather than feeling powerless. And I think that alone is just, it's, it's, a, it's a really subversive act to take that mindset. It absolutely is. I've been speaking with my sister and just my close friends about consumer guilt and this sense that, you know, I did so good for so long and here I am like breaking all of my moral high ground of not buying stuff because I'm going to an event and want a new dress or something. I'm like, I need to get over myself sometimes, you know, but I think it's coming to that point where you can say like, I'm no longer guilty. I'm making the best decision for myself in this particular moment. And we're just going to do the best we can day to day. Letting go of that consumer guilt is really difficult, 
but it's also wildly empowering because I'm like, I realize that there are other things I can do that are beyond my purchases. Where, who are my local representatives and how am I supporting these organizations and where are my donations going and where am I choosing to, again, choosing to bank that has been, that was a fascinating learning experience for me to like realize that my bank was funding fossil fuel projects. So there is a lot of nuance in consumerism that a lot of people don't come to terms with on the surface level, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I think that's right. I, I love your point about letting go of consumer guilt because guilt really doesn't help anything. And oftentimes it focuses on, it focuses us on the wrong things. The book is about both environmental activism and social justice activism, because I think for too long, those things have been talked about separately and it's really been to the detriment of both movements. So we need to bring them together. But I, I highly recommend the book, The Wake Up by Michelle Mijung Kim. She talks about on the social justice side, how if you feel guilty, you're likely to take action that is aimed at making you feel better rather than actually changing the status quo or pushing for justice. And she gives examples of actual harm that does. Like when white folks send an email to a coworker who's black and say like, oh, what can I do for you? with good intentions, but it's sort of putting this mental burden on that person to have to respond to you and, you know, to have to get into stuff where they might not trust you to share their experiences with racism. And so it's, it's trying to get out of that mindset of like, how do I make myself feel better? And instead think about how do I get the best action or how do I have the best impact in the world? And so I think give yourself permission to let go of that guilt because it's important to let it go both because the you that made different choices in the past that you wish you hadn't made, you were doing your best in that moment. You didn't maybe have all the information that you have now, or you were misled by companies who were trying to profit off you. And so really, I think the thing to focus on is as you know, better, you do better. You know, that's, that's not my original quote, but I think it's a really good way to live and, and to think not about the guilt, but you know, what can I do a little better today that I didn't do yesterday? Wow. I love that. I love that. Thank you so much, Tanya, for sharing that. My last question for you today before we wrap up is if you are at the point where you already believe yourself to be a generally conscious consumer, you're doing your best day to day and you're buying organic and going to the farmer's markets and not buying all that much stuff. What is the next first step that you can take into wallet activism? I think banking is truly the the best first step for almost everyone because it is a little painful one time you know if you have a lot of deposits coming in and out of your checking account something like that it is a little bit of a process to move them but you can draw a direct line between money that's sitting in your savings account and funding of fossil fuel projects around the world if you're banking with a big bank like bank of america wells fargo jp morgan chase um, citibank any big multinational bank, that money is going to fund bad stuff that I bet you don't support. Um, And so switching it over to a credit union, to a community impact credit union, to a black owned bank, uh, you have a lot of different options now that didn't used to exist that I talk about in in more depth in the book. Um, That is a hugely powerful act. And this is where, you know, people will say, well, gosh, are we really, we're not going to get 50% of people to do this. And you forget corporations and big banks are included in that. They start to pay attention if they get 3% of customers leaving and they'll say, why is this happening? Why is this cutting into our profits? The shareholders are going to demand answers about, you know, why are we 
losing customers instead of gaining them. And so it really doesn't take that many of us to take this action to both directly defund the fossil fuel projects, but also to push the corporations to stop funding them altogether. And so if you do one thing, if if that's the only thing you do, um, changing your bank is a huge deal. Love that tip. Thank you so much for that, Tanya. I think banking is, it's a deep dive topic that I hope to get into further with the audience, but it's like, no one thinks about banking. Absolutely not. For Mm -hmm. a long time, I thought my money was just like sitting at a shopping mall at a Wells Fargo. And that's totally not what happens. And I don't know why a lot of us just have, again, that dissonance that like the money is just sitting there waiting for you to use it on a down payment or something like that's not what happens. Yeah. Or maybe it's funding like mortgages in your neighborhood or something like that, which even if that's the case, all the big banks have terrible histories of lending discrimination. And so you're also supporting that, even if that's all it's doing, which it isn't, it's also doing the funding, the bad projects around the world. I mean, we could go on and on about this. It also is tied to forced labor, uh, to, you know, conflict minerals, to all the stuff that you hate it's being funded by the big banks. So get your money out of there (laughs) and uh, that'll be a really good thing. Great tip. Great tip. Thank you so much, Tanya. And thank you for joining me today. I've had a lot of fun just hearing from you and picking your brain a little bit, and this has been a real treat. Thanks so much for having me. This was great. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's conversation with Tanya Hester, author of Wallet Activism, How to Use Every Dollar You Spend, Earn, and Save as a Force for Change. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with a friend, rate and review on Apple Pods. I will have my links in the description as well as Tanya's links so you can learn more about her and so you can learn a little bit more about wallet activism. Like I said at the top of the show, the book releases next week, so keep an eye out for it. And please let me know what you thought of this episode. In the next few weeks, we are going to be talking about banking, conscious investing, ESGs, savings accounts, everything of the sort. As mentioned by Tanya, we're going to be doing a little bit more of a deep dive with another guest. So I look forward to sharing that episode with you. And like I said, stay critical, stay conscious. Don't fall for those Black Friday sales if you don't have to. I mean, of course, save your dollar where you can but just be a little mindful of your consumption this holiday season. I will have my Black Friday episodes linked in the show notes if you want to get into it. And like I said, I look forward to chatting with you soon. Have an awesome day. Bye. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the Roaring Twenties. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.